It's very much like the kind of thing people used to say to gay and lesbian people, like, oh, if you just had the right mm-hmm. heterosexual experience, then you wouldn't be gay or lesbian anymore. Like, it would fix you. There's no fixing because there's nothing wrong. Hello and welcome, fellow human. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Humans in Love, a podcast that looks at culture, relationships, and personal development from unconventional perspectives. Join me as I dig into the question of how people like you and I might get more out of life and love. Thanks for being here. friends, Zachary Stockhill here from Humans in Love. Thank you for joining me today. In today's episode, I'm going to ask the question, what is polyamory? This is a topic that is getting increasing coverage in the news and popular media, but I think there's still a lot of misconceptions around it. I am not polyamorous myself, but I'm a very curious guy, as you probably know by now, and I wanted to talk to someone who'd give me a better understanding of this increasingly popular relationship configuration. So I spoke with Dr. Elizabeth Sheff. Dr. Sheff is one of a handful of global academic experts on polyamory and the foremost academic expert on children in polyamorous families, something that I knew nothing about before this conversation. It's really interesting stuff. In today's episode of Humans in Love, I spoke with Dr. Sheff about polyamory, what is polyamory, the challenges and surprising advantages of polyamorous relationships, raising kids in polyamorous families, overcoming jealousy, something called relationship anarchy, which I've never heard of before, really interesting stuff, and a whole lot more. Really hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you dig what I'm doing here, if you like Humans in Love and you'd like me to keep doing this, please take a moment to let me know by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. Without any further ado, I present to you my conversation with Dr. Elizabeth Sheff. Dr. Chef, thank you for making time for me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Great. And so first, I was hoping maybe you could just introduce yourself and talk about your main research interests. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Chef. Most people call me Dr. Eli. I am interested, I have been studying polyamorous families with children since 1996. I started that as my dissertation research at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Since then, I have also studied BDSM or kinky sex and used those, that knowledge to kind of branch into the law as well. So now I'm not only a sexuality scholar and a family scholar, but a legal scholar as well. Wow. There's, Endless interesting routes we could go down with that inter- introduction. That's a, that's a pretty juicy introduction. Well, just to first off, kind of like lay the groundwork for the rest of our discussion. How do you define polyamory? Because I think people have really misguided notions of what the term actually means. Absolutely. And even people who think they know or who practice polyamory might disagree on the definition of polyamory, ultimately. It's fairly complex. So I define it fairly broadly, actually, and then ask my respondents what it means to them. And so that's more important for me, at least, if people understand themselves as polyamorous, then I want to talk to them about what that means. I'm not kind of weeding out people that don't fit my definition of polyamory. But for me, polyamory is a form of consensual non-monogamy that emphasizes emotional intimacy and perhaps sexual intimacy generally among groups larger than two. Although I've found that while within that definition it makes room for group sex, most polyamorists, for the most part, have sex one-on-one with each other, but they'll just have multiple sexual partners. Occasionally, There'll be a threesome or a quad. So threesomes in polyamory world are called triads. Four-person relationships are called quads. And occasionally there'll be one of those that tends to 
interact sexually as a group, but for the most part, at least within my research, group sex is kind of a, a condiment, whereas one-on-one sex is much more the main course. Mm. And where, where did your interest in this topic come from? When I was 22, I fell in love with a man who told me he never wanted to be monogamous, never wanted to get married. And at the time, I just thought he was going to be kind of more of a passing fling, I guess, until I got back to real relationships with women. So when he told me that on our first date, I was like, whatever, dude, freak, I don't care. You know, you don't, you don't mean anything to me. So you just have your whatever, your freaky stuff to yourself. But then later when I fell in love with him, I was like, whoa, (laughs) what does this mean? Like non-monogamy? I don't, I don't even understand like how we could be unmarried, non-monogamous and in a serious relationship, like having children and things. I was like, how does this all fit together? Um, And as an intellectual I intellectualized what frightened me and started studying polyamory. Well, not initially, actually. The very, probably the first year I was in contact with the polyamorous community, it was civilian, meaning it was all about me and my own relationship. I didn't approach it as a researcher. I was like, this is freaking me out. How do you all do this? I'm, I'm like, when my partner tells me he wants multiple partners, I hear you're too fat and you're bad in bed. And he kept saying, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm really not saying that. Like, you're fine. No matter who you were, I would want multiple partners is what he would tell me. But even it helped, it didn't, until I talked to other people who did it, it didn't really sink in, in a way. I didn't really understand it. And then once I talked to those folks, about a year into going to like polyamory support groups and uh, meetup wasn't a thing yet at the time, but kind of like what would be considered a meetup now, I guess. Um, And I was in graduate school. I was like, you people are fascinating, not just for my own personal life, but just on a sociological Mm -hmm. level. What a fascinating group of people. And then it didn't hurt that it helped me intellectualize this thing that was just freaking me out completely. So what was the nature of the freaking out? Was this jealousy primarily? No, actually, ironically, I don't, like just in my internal cosmology, I don't necessarily feel jealous of other people. Like I don't, I'm angry at you or I don't want you to have that. I get insecure, like, oh, I'm not enough. Of course you want this other person because, and I'm well familiar with my own faults. I have, you know, endless reasons in my own mind why other people are cooler and prettier and just, you know, more than me. And I think that that's not unusual, actually, now that I've done the research, that when there's a primarily monogamous person who gets approached about polyamory, often their first instinct for the monogamous person is, okay, so there must be some lack in me that makes you want other partners. Because if I were better, sexier, skinnier, more exciting in bed, you know, whatever, then you wouldn't need other people. And what I have come to realize through my research is that is not at all the case. It's very much like the kind of thing people used to say to gay and lesbian people, like, oh, if you just had the right Mm -hmm. heterosexual experience, then you wouldn't be gay or lesbian anymore. Like, it would fix you. And I've come to realize there's no fixing necessary, not only with gay and lesbian people, but with polyamorous people. There's no fixing because there's nothing wrong with wanting multiple partners. It doesn't mean there's a lack on anyone's part. It means that, at least for some people, they are wired that way, that it's a form of sexual orientation for them, and they really would want multiple partners no matter who they were with. And so it kind of sunk in and depersonalized it for me, that it, 
it made my insecurity, it didn't make it go away, but it made it kind of, it gave me a broader perspective on it, I guess, that it wasn't really about me. Although, are you sure? Maybe everything in the world is about me. It's all about me, isn't it? No, and that wasn't about me, ironically. This might be a really difficult question to answer, but I'm curious, do you have any sense of the numbers of people who are polyamorous? I mean, what's your best sort of estimate as, as far as that goes? Oh, it's so interesting. We finally have actual data on this. And the numbers are around consensual non-monogamy as a whole. So of that group, we're not sure how many are polyamorous or how many are swingers or how many are monogamish or just in an open relationship. We don't have it broken down quite that fine tooth, but what we know and that when the solid numbers came out, it knocked my socks off. I couldn't believe it. 20% of people have tried consensual non-monogamy. 20% that one in five people has tried consensual non-monogamy. I really did not expect that at all. I didn't see that coming. I thought the number would be much lower. So I was thrilled when I saw that. Just it's so fun as a scientist to be proven your misconceptions, to be proven wrong. It's really exciting. Um, and then in terms of ongoing, maintaining consensually non-monogamous relationships, that's about 5% of people. And we're talking about the United States right here, actually, I should clarify. Um, and that 5% is more than lesbians, gays, bisexuals, and transgender people combined don't make up 5% of mm -hmm. the population. So there are more non-monogamists than LGBTQ folks. Although I have to say, lots of LGBTQ folks also do non-monogamy. There's a strong correlation there as well. How did the genders break down? Is it fairly evenly distributed? You know, that's such a good question. I don't know that the research, you know, I would need to look at that. Hmm. Check that out. Um, you know, research answers that question is Terry Conley. And if you really want to know, I can absolutely find that data for you. It's interesting that we don't really have super solid data on that hmm. yet. In fact, ironically, that's one of the things that the bonding project, this relationship test I've been working on with my collaborators, um, has been showing us that uh, with some really preliminary data from our beta testing of that, over half of our respondents right now are LGBTQ. So considerably less than half are heterosexual. I think it was like 30 something percent were heterosexual, which surprised me. And that could be a function of who we know as, re as you know, the, the team putting it together, who we know personally and kind of asking our beta testers to check it out. So as it gets wider distribution, I have a feeling that LGBTQ might go down. But um, at least among that population, cisgender folks only make up, I would say, half to two-thirds, maybe. And at least a third, if not half, of the folks are either agender or genderqueer or gender non-binary or transgender. Right. So this kind of previous idea of non-monogamy as something men and women do might be accurate for the swing setting, but for many other forms of non-monogamy, not as much. Men and women are still doing it, but so lots of other people. Right. I, I appreciated something you said earlier. I'd like to come back to it where you, you distinguished or you, you made it clear that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but for the most part, polyamorous relationships are not swinging. Like there, there's not group sex. There's not massive orgies going on. 
Uh, it's people having sex one-on-one and they have multiple relationships. And these are relationships. These are intimate sexual relationships with, you know, that has a lot of one-on-one interaction. There's just multiple, you know, one person having multiple of those, of those relationships. I think that's an important clarification because I mean, you're the expert, but I feel like there, there's probably still a lot of misguided notions around polyamory out there. I think people still think of like key parties in the sixties and like crazy group sex and all kinds of, and of course that is one component I'm sure of polyamorous people. But I think it's interesting because I think a lot of people can't quite wrap their heads around having an intimate, loving relationship with more than one person at a time. Um, Right. Yeah. But I mean, I wanted to get more into some of the misconceptions. I mean, are there any misconceptions around polyamory that you might want to address? One thing that it's all about the sex and that sex is the main event and that it's all kind of correlated around sexuality. And for some polyamorous, sex really is a big deal and it is the main driver of polyamory. But for, I would say, the majority of people, especially long-term polyamorists, Sex takes a second or third or fourth seat to other elements of the relationship, much like heterosexual monogamous relationships that last for a long time. If all they are are fantastic lovers, then it makes it really hard to deal with someone being sick, for instance, or if someone loses their job, you know, like... There's a lot more to relationships besides the sex. In fact, it's so important in polyamorous relationships that I made up the word polyaffective for an emotional relationship within a polycule. So let me back up just a little bit. A polycule is the kind of network of polyamorous relationships, almost like a little expanded family. So let's say it's um, three people together and then they're, so they would be the polycule, the three people with, let's say their children and dogs and perhaps cats as well. Um, (laughs) They would be the polycule and then they would also also probably be nested within a larger framework. Let's say in, as well, they date people outside of their three-person relationship. Depending on how closely aligned those people are, they may also be members of the polycule, or they might be members of kind of a broader social network. But I have found that it's the non-sexual relationships within the polycule that make the difference between that family being resilient over long periods of time and that family kind of crashing and burning spectacularly. So let's say the three-person relationship is, and this is the most common kind I've found, in fact, a heterosexual woman with her two male partners. That's the most common kind I've found. If those two male partners who are also generally heterosexual, if they really like each other and support each other and have an independent relationship, you know, almost like a brother-husband relationship outside of their relationship with her, then that family is incredibly resilient. If, on the other hand, those two men do not like each other, then that family is not going to get along. Well, over the long haul, the the two non-romantic partners, if they're having tension and angst, that's not a resilient family. When they cooperate in keeping the family together, that's an incredibly resilient family. So Ironically, the non-sexual relationships are the glue, the long-term glue of the family, much more so than sexual relationships, which as most, again, like monogamous heterosexual people know who've been in very long-term relationships, other things become the stability and the sex is kind of like a nice addition, you know, especially ironically for the, or maybe not ironically at all, for my aging 
folks, the people who are, um, you know, retired and perhaps facing a different social life and or perhaps health implications, you know, so I'm talking about polyamorous people in like their 70s and 80s and a couple of them in their 90s, although I hardly have any, I would say just the one maybe in his 90s, but most of the elders I'm talking about are in like their 60s, 70s and 80s. And that like most older older people, sex for them is, you know, maybe continuing to be a part of life, but certainly not the way it used to be and not the core element of any ongoing relationship. As long as we're talking about misconceptions about polyamory, this might be one. And I'll tell you my, when I think of polyamory, what I think of. And I have had periods of my life where I was, for example, dating multiple women openly and honestly, but I've never been in a situation where I felt like I was in love with more than one, one woman at a time and had a genuinely polyamorous kind of relationship life. But from the outside looking in, it seems to me, and perhaps again, this is misguided, it seems like a lot of work like a lot of time and a lot of management of different people and different emotions. And, you know, one dating one woman, having one girlfriend is a full-time job often in and of itself. Uh, and you know, I'm the same, you know, I, I can be a lot of work as well. And it just seems to me that adding another deep, intimate connection into that would just be a lot of work. And for people with, you know, jobs and research and students and classes and writing, I mean, it just seems, from my perspective, when I think of polyamorous relationships, I think it obviously it works for a lot of people, but for me, it just seems like a lot of, a lot of work, a lot of extra work. Um, is this misguided thinking on my part? I would say it really depends on how the people handle it. Hmm. It would be an incredible amount of work and is for some people if they either have mismatched expectations of what they want from the relationship, from their partner. So trying to figure out expectations and then come to a place where perhaps differing expectations, people can figure out how to cooperate or compromise on those, that can be a lot of work. So especially at the beginning, I've found the relationships can take a lot of work to establish and kind of reach the steady state of smooth functioning. But once that state is reached, they can be much more beneficial than effortful. But reaching that, like there is a sharp, sharp, sharp learning curve to get to reach that state. And some people, especially if they're already in a relationship and then looking to open that relationship, that can be an incredible amount of work because people might not even know what their expectations are to be able to negotiate them because especially if they've never done polyamory before the idea of what consensual non-monogamy might be is often incredibly different from how it actually works out once people try it you know especially for heterosexual men who have a female partner and are looking to add another woman, which is an incredibly common way people approach the polyamorous community. And for those men, often the conception is that they will be the center of attention with these two women kind of perhaps performatively making out in front of them, but really the sex is about him finishing them off. Mm -hmm. And then in reality, when the women end up being way more into each other and the dude is kind of sidelined, that can be really disillusioning for some men who then are like, you know, I don't think I want to do this anymore. And women are like, I'm totally digging this. I don't know what your problem is, dude, but this is awesome. Um, mm -hmm. That can be really tricky. That can be a lot of work. But if people are able to then broaden their expectations, especially date independently, instead of forcing kind of people to date as a couple, that works great in swinging. In polyamory, that really does not work well at all. 
um, and to date people of all genders and not only look for a bisexual woman that will be in, equally in love with both members of this heteroflexible couple. Um, that, trying to find that is so difficult. They call her the unicorn, mm-hmm. a free bisexual woman to add in to a heterocentric relationship. So yes, that would take a ton of work. But broadening out, kind of letting go of expectations and seeing what actually happens and approaching it with a kind of a generosity of spirit of like, we're, we're going to figure out how to make this work. And it might not look the way we fantasized about, but it could be even better in the long run. So hmm. they definitely come across as a lot of work and can be if you're trying to kind of squish a square peg into a round hole of not, you know, especially forcing the dating of the couple. That's an incredible lot of work. And almost always doomed to failure within the polyamorous world. Hmm. But in other ways, they're far more advantageous. Once they're established, far more advantageous. Could you give me some examples of that? Let's see. I can think of this triad. It's a woman and her two dudes. Um, And each of the dudes has a house and she pays kind of half-ish rent at both places, and she spends a night in one house and then a night in the other, and bicycles back and forth. Um, and the three of them are very solid, and it works great that the men don't have to live together, so they have their own space. But, for instance, each of the men has had a parent die during this interaction, and not like a quick and you're gone, but like a lingering needs a lot of care, needs legal help, needs people to deal with their stuff that they're obviously not going to be able to go back and pack up because they're mortally ill. Um, And having three people able to either support the one person two people to support the one person whose parent is dying and or when they themselves have gotten ill, someone to drive someone to chemotherapy and then stay with them and pick them up. And then when they come home, there's someone else who's been able to go to the grocery store and get some food ready that they know the person post-chemo will be able to keep in. Mm-hmm. So those kind of, I'm, I guess I'm thinking of really long-term relationships. And those folks have been, let's see, she's now in her 70s. And she's been with one of her male partners since they were 18. Wow. And other of her male partners since her 40s. So That's remarkable. Kind of, yes, resilient long-term relationships they had when they first got together the first year of transitioning from kind of her and the guy she'd been with since she was 18 to adding another primary partner that first year was hard 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 for them Hmm. the 35 years since then have been fantastic well worth the difficulty of that one year so I, I, can guarantee, I can guarantee that you're currently blowing some of my listeners' and viewers' minds right now because one of my yes. main interests is jealousy and helping people overcome jealousy. And I like to point to polyamorous communities as an example when I'm trying to prove the, the point that jealousy isn't an inherent um, quality of being human, that you know, it's not built into us. It's not insurmountable mm-hmm. um, necessarily. And, you know, there's lots of examples of people who have successfully overcome it. And in some circumstances that an outsider looking at that would say, good Lord, I'd be so jealous and I don't know how I'd overcome that. Maybe you could talk a little bit about jealousy in the context of polyamory. I would say that jealousy is something that is human. So there I'm going to kind of disagree with you. 
Um, I would say that a lot of people do experience jealousy within polyamory, but ironically, the research says that people are way more jealous when you measure levels of jealousy, self-reported levels of jealousy from people in monogamous relationships and polyamorous relationships. The monogamous people measure much higher on jealousy because they're not supposed to be attracted to other people. They're not supposed to think about other people. So there's, it's, it's much more threatening Whereas the polyamorous people do experience it, but they've got all sorts of ways to deal with it, especially talking about it directly. Um, I would say in the first two waves of data collection, or even the first three, which would be about 15, 20-ish years, there were at least four people who told me that they had never experienced jealousy. They did not understand the emotion. Like it didn't land with them. They didn't, jealousy wasn't real in their universe somehow. Four people. And then in the fourth round of data collection, which is the one I'm still working on right now, three of those four said that they had experienced jealousy. And for all three of them, it was kind of this perfect storm of something going wrong with themselves. Like one person lost their job and gained some weight and was just kind of depressed. For another person, their long-term other sweetie broke up with them and they were feeling really missing that person. And for another person, I think she had had a baby and she was like, who am I now? You know, I'm, I'm a mom too, but I'm also all these other things. And how do I fit that in together? So all three of them were having kind of a crisis of their own. And then while that was happening, their most beloved partner hooks up with someone new who is exciting in some way that they are not and they experience jealousy for the first time and one of them was like oh my goodness I have so much more kind of compassion for my partners who have expressed jealousy to me because it sucks that emotion is so painful I had no idea and now I feel so bad that I was kind of an ass to them about you know, them and their jealousy um so that has given me this idea that people have jealousy nodes, kind of. And some people have a whole bunch of jealousy nodes, and some people only have a few. And some people's jealousy nodes get activated by all sorts of things, and other people, their jealousy nodes, really hardly have any activators. And it has to be that kind of perfect storm of feeling bad about themselves somehow and someone new coming into their beloved's life at the same time. That's an interesting way to frame it. Jealousy nodes. I might, I might uh, steal that. <laughs> I'll give you credit, but that's, that's really interesting. I've never looked at it like that. Yeah. Because you do, you do meet people with next to no jealousy nodes as you put Absolutely. it. Yeah. And I suppose as well, like when I, when I was framing the, the question, I think of like, you look at hunter gatherer societies and the next to no levels of jealousy in many of the societies. And yeah, which leads me to think that it's, it's, you know, more social than it's often given credit for jealousy in general. Um, but yeah, it's still something I'm working, working out, but that, that's, I really like the way you framed that. But I think it's also yeah. a lack of resources or figuring out how to share scarce resources. Like there's only 24 hours in a day and no matter how much your partner says, I love you, I love you, I love you. If you don't get to see them for two months, then that might activate your jealousy nodes, especially if they're seeing someone else a whole bunch. Mm -hmm. So that that's only socially constructed, which I absolutely do think, especially um, romantic jealousy is very socially constructed. But that kind of feeling of, I don't want to lose my resources, you know, like, fine, see other people, whatever, but don't take time away from me. Mm. I think Interesting. Perhaps hardwired. Mm. 
Interesting. To be continued. But how you deal with it is not. Yes. Whether you say, I'm feeling jealous, so you have to stop, or I'm feeling jealous, can I, can you give me some reassurance? Can you make sure to hang out with me on my birthday? Right. Absolutely. Before we go any further, I have to ask you about um, children who grew up in polyamorous families. That was the line in the, in the email that uh, I think your agent sent to me that really jumped out at me. I would imagine this is an extremely young field of research. What have you learned about kids who grow up in, in polyamorous homes? Well, for one thing, I think that's a great misconception that people automatically assume that polyamory is bad for children and would cost children. It turns out at least the children involved in my research, and they're kind of a special group, um, that coming from a polyamorous family is incredibly advantageous for them, that they get all the stuff they would get from a regular family, which I guess means two-ish parents, depending. I mean, what is a regular family now? Families are so diverse. But they get what we expect in a way from family life, emotional support, a grounding and an ethical framework of how to live their lives, boundaries, you know, socialization, um, practical support, things like that. They get all of that. And then on top of that, they get to watch their parents communicate extensively, take responsibility for issues in their relationship, um, even admit to the children when they're wrong sometimes. Like a lot of the skills the parents get from polyamorous relationships then translate into parenting skills of being honest and establishing emotionally intimate and supportive relationships with an age-appropriate level of information. So for instance, a lot of small children in polyamorous families just take their family for granted. They don't really get it that their family is any different from any other family. It's just the way their family is. Not until they get to like elementary school do they start to understand that other children's families are different. And then it tends to express as a deficit in the other kids. Like they only have four grandparents, those poor kids. You know, they don't get nearly the awesome presence this person with 12 grandparents gets. Um, or they don't have, you know, someone to give them a ride. Like when you've got five adults in the polycule, somebody's going to be able to pick you up and you're 12, you want to ride, you know, you can't afford Uber and you don't want to take the bus, you know? So yeah, somebody give me a ride. Having five adults to call on for that is amazing. But what really stands, so in the moment, the children are like, I get these practical advantages from this. And then once they hit like, 22 to 30, I would say, they start looking back and they're finding all of these incredibly valuable social skills that they learned in their families. How to negotiate, how to take responsibility for something you messed up and apologize and move on. How to establish emotionally intimate connections in their lives. So they can move out from the home, the parental home, they can go to college, and they're not necessarily adrift because they know how to find people with similar attitudes or lifestyle or ideas and how to become close to them. So they take these emotional and communication skills with them into their lives as young adults. And no one in my sample yet has become an older adult. They're all like the, my oldest person is just turning 30 now, but they find it very advantageous. Not to say that they don't experience disadvantages. Polyamorous families experience the same kinds of disadvantages that other, especially other diverse families experience. So stigma, just like LGBT families or interracial families, um, the kind of loss of a partner who moves on 
just like families who are either divorced or single parents who are dating. The kind of overcrowding that comes with lots of people living together, they, you know, large families experience that. So while there's no unique disadvantages that only come with polyamorous families, there are some unique advantages in terms of learning these communication skills, the resilient emotional skills, and having all these adults to support them turns out to be a lifelong thing that they often stay in touch with the other adults that they grew up with, even if their parents don't necessarily maintain a romantic connection with that person, they can often maintain themselves independently a social connection with that person, generally using social media. Hmm. Just bypass their parents completely. Yeah. It, w- one thing I was thinking about when I was preparing for this interview is, and again, you're the expert, but it seems to me that when there was started to be research done on children who grew up in uh, gay uh, homes, like their parents were gay. Uh, and just in general in society, people would think, oh, the kids are going to be gay, right? Like, oh, it's going to make them have all these weird ideas and they're going to be gay and this is a problem. Um, and then gay children, you know, the research came out, gay children grew up and some were gay and some were straight and it, it had no bearing on their sexuality because of course, right? Like that makes total sense. Um, is there any research that's analogous to what I just described in terms of polyamory, kids growing up in polyamorous uh, homes? I always ask my sample that. And on the one hand, I'm a little nervous about the question because even just asking, do your kids grow up to be polyamorous? Kind of the underlying thing is, this is weird and we hope they don't. Because we never ask monogamous heterosexual parents, do your kids grow up to be heterosexual? Sure. To be monogamous? You know, we're, we, we don't so underlying the question, there's kind of problematizing it. But even so, I wonder that myself. So I would always ask the kids and get a huge range of responses, I would say. Some of them that, you know, polyamory is too constraining and relationship anarchy is the choice they would make because... Relationship polyam- anarchy. Okay, what is relationship anarchy? Relationship anarchy is a form of relationships sometimes associated, frequently associated with non-monogamy, where people um, organize their relationships individually and independently, not around, for instance, social conventions that say, till death do you part, but because they want to be together and they're together as long as the relationship works well for both of them, And then if it stops working, they either change the relationship. So, you know, address underlying issues so it works better. Or if they've like grown apart or something, they change the relationship into a non-romantic relationship. Hmm. And or people who don't necessarily want to organize their life around a romantic relationship. So may have sexual and or romantic relationships, but having a, a single, you know, primary partner that they always have Christmas and Thanksgiving and a car payment, things like that, they don't want that. They would much prefer more independent and individual relationships. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, that's a great title for like a podcast, Relationship Anarchy. That's fantastic. Oh, there's been, it's just within the last 10 years, it's wow. become, and now there's been a lot written about it. Um, some people relate it to solo polyamory. Um, still implies within a polyamorous framework, so there is some desire for both kind of romantic and or sexual intimacy. Other people who just practice it as more of a relationship style and not necessarily a sexuality, especially if they are aromantic or asexual, relationship anarchy can work great for them because they're they are not necessarily wanting a spouse but they are wanting emotionally intimate, durable relationships. Right. right. So some of the kids are like, I want that. Polyamory has too many rules. Others of the kids on the other far extreme, a direct quote, 
one of the young women, when I asked her if I, if she thought she would be polyamorous, she was like, no fucking way. No, <laughs> under no circumstances. No, absolutely not. More of the kids, however, are, I would say in this middle zone where they're like, maybe, you know, one kid told me, um, he was 15, still trying to figure out the whole like kissing with the tongue thing. And polyamory was just like, he couldn't even think about it right now. <laughs> Way beyond like, ask me once I figured this other stuff out. I'm just kind of yeah. getting for this. I don't know. I can't even think about that right now. Was his I hope he's figured it out. <laughs> the kissing thing. Well, I mean. yes. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. For others of them, they're like, well, it really depends on my partner. You know, let's see who, what happens in my life. And then maybe, maybe not. So it's definitely on the potential menu, but they don't feel compelled to do it. Right. Very interesting. Before we run out of time, tell me about the bonding project. Oh, I'm so excited about it um, because I've talked for years about how consensual non-monogamy is not for everyone. It's not a good choice for everyone. Some people really would not fare well in consensual non-monogamy. Can I just pause you really quickly? Because I really appreciate you saying that because it seems to me, and I've had this conversation with other people I've had on the podcast who are in open marriages, for example. People, it seems to me, they feel threatened by people in an open relationship since they almost feel like they're the relationships are under attack or something. Whereas yes. what Dr. Eli does for Dr. Eli is fantastic. What Zach does for Zach is fantastic. And it doesn't have to be that way. So I really appreciate you saying that you're not evangelizing, say, Oh, the whole world needs to be this way. Like, of course not. I'm not even polyamorous myself. Oh, there you go. <laughs> there you go. But I've definitely talked to a lot of people who are like, well, that, I guess could be interesting. I don't know. I, I really haven't thought about it. It never really, how do I know if, if that would be good for me or not? And so um, not only that, but also my, my colleague whose idea this was, was kind of getting tired of dating people who realize they really wanted monogamy and she very much does not want the expectation. Mm monogamy. So she was like, I wish there was a test. I could just give people before I start dating them to make sure, you know, like, do you want non-monogamy or not? Um, so we, in collaboration with two of our other colleagues, came up with this test, kind of like the Myers-Briggs in a way, except what's different for us is our test is based in science. I did an extensive literature search on relationship resilience and satisfaction, especially in non-monogamy. And we came up with this kind of very fine-toothed test that gives lots of options. Um, so it asks you basically about bonding as one-to-one, one-to-many, many-to-many, or solo bonding, and then the, when you get the results back, what you get is kind of divided into these categories of are you comfortable, curious, cautious, or challenged by that. So it gives you a metric on each of those one-to-one, one-to-many. Um, so it's very, it's not just a, oh, you are purple or whatever. It's very kind of fine-toothed and and I think really gives people food for thought as well as results that indicate this might work really well for you, but this other thing could be really hard because of this. And we're finding that for some people, monogamy, the expectations with monogamy are incredibly difficult and challenging and do not work for them. For others, they are most comfortable with monogamy or a one-to-one bond. And the of bonding with multiple people is not at all comfortable for them. Clearly those two folks should not date. (laughs) They should hopefully find people whose results are closer to their own. Yeah, I took the test. It's very well executed. I recommend anyone listening. Do you mind if I ask your results? Um, maybe we can talk about that some other time. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, it was very interesting. Yeah. I, um, it's, it's very well executed, very well done. So I recommend it to anyone uh, watching or listening. 
Um, in, a, in a few words before I let you go, we're, we're talking at the tail end of a very weird year. Shifting focus a bit. Uh, I've been asking all my guests this year, what has this year taught you? Like, what, what did 2020 teach you? What did you learn? Like, in, in a few words, what's, what's your response to that? I would say this year I learned that I need to have more distance from social media. That mm, here, here. Social media people, I think, especially this year, people have been, there's just so much to be upset and angry about and all the targets for that upsetness are far away. Like, how do you tell coronavirus that you're mad at its impact on your life? You know, you can't really do anything with coronavirus. But if someone on your social media feed says something that you might disagree with, then they become this target that you can like unleash all your pent up frustration and anger and sorrow and you know, I've, I've experienced it myself this year. I've talked to multiple other people who have had that same experience of people online just unleashing on them in this really vitriolic way that I think would probably not happen in person. So yeah. social media, I feel like, can be really useful to connect and to reach out when you're isolated and to find other people. And at the same time it kind of removes a little bit of the civility maybe that we would have if we were interacting in person. To so. say the least. Yes. I mean, the, the framework that I used to, to kind of think about it myself is use it as a tool as opposed to a drug. <laughs> yes. Um, that's kind of the way I, like I, I choose to look at it. Yeah. Well, Dr. Eli, I really enjoyed this discussion. Where's the best place people can find you online? Good places to start with my website, elisabethchef.com, E-L-I-S-A-B-E-T-H-S-H-E-F-F.com. I also blog on psychology today at The Polyamorous Next Door, which is the title of my first book, or check out bondingproject.com. Perfect. Great. Well, Dr. Eli, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. I enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Humans in Love. If you'd like to learn more about my guests, my work, or you'd like to listen to back episodes of the podcast, please visit humansinlove.com. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Humans in Love using your podcast app of choice. If you're a fan of Humans in Love, you'd like to help keep the show going and help me spread the word, please take 30 seconds out of your day to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. Before I let you go, remember that life is short, so let's make it count. And thank you, as always, for your listenership and support. I'll talk to you again very soon.